Our scripture that was previously read came from 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, reading from the 18th through the 31st verse. But allow me just to lift up the 26th through the 29th verses. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man, no man may boast before God. There are a lot of things in life that does not seem to make any sense. For example, why do they have drive-up ATMs with braille lettering? Why don't you ever see the headline, Psychic Wins the Lottery? Why is it that doctors call what they do practice? Why is the man that invests all your money called a broker? Why is the time of day where the traffic is slowest is called rush hour? And if con is the opposite of pro, then is Congress the opposite of progress? These are funny quips when we think about them, but what happens when we apply some of these to the Christian faith? For example, the scriptures tell us things like, to get, we must give. To really live, we must die. To save one's life, we must lose it. To be wise, we must become fools. To reign, we must serve. To be exalted, we must be humble. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. I am crucified with Christ, yet I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. These all seem somehow a little backward. And when we think about all the rituals and all the customs, all the traditions, all the formalities, and all the work that we do tirelessly, day after day, year after year in the church, sometimes it seems to end up going nowhere. We spend decades of our lives working hard to do the right things, and sometimes we have seemingly nothing to show for it. Even worse, we look across at our neighbors, and they don't seem to even be thinking about God, yet somehow they seem to be prospering in their lives. Many of us have genuinely committed our lives following this faith, and it does not seem to be worth it, but we still follow. What does it all mean? For what profit is all our labor? And if we're really honest with ourselves, we ask the question, what is all this worshiping really for? Does any of this make sense? Doesn't it all sometimes seem a little foolish? Well, today I want to talk about why we serve why we still serve, why we still believe, why we still have faith. And I've chosen to title this message quite simply, Foolish Power. Foolish Power. 
Let us pray. Father, we thank you now for this preaching hour. We thank you, Lord, that you have prepared us well for this moment. You are Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah Shalom. And as the psalmist has sung the songs into our very spirits, we thank you, O Lord, that we are now prepared for the foolishness of preaching that can bring power to dead life, dead bodies, dead spirits. So come, Holy Spirit, come. Fill us now with your words. And we will give you all the honor, the glory, and the praise for the foolishness that will always confound the wise. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A churchgoer wrote a letter to the editor of a newspaper and complained that it made no sense to go to church every single Sunday. The man said in the letter to the editor, I've gone to church for over 30 years now, and in that time I have heard almost 3,000 different sermons, but for the life of me, I can't even remember a single one of them. So I think that I am wasting my time, and the pastors, they are wasting their time by giving all of these sermons. As a matter of fact, this started a real controversy within the newspaper, much to the delight of the editor. People were writing letters all over the place, giving their thoughts and their comments, and this was making the newspaper quite wealthy, and they loved it. But then there was a response. A response came from someone who said, I have been married for 30 years now. In that time, my wife has cooked some 32,000 meals. But for the life of me, I cannot recall the entire menu for a single one of those meals. But I do know this to be true. They all nourished me, and they all gave me the strength I needed in order to do my work. If my wife had not made me these meals, I would be physically dead today. Likewise, if I had not gone to church for nourishment, I would be spiritually dead today. Sometimes we're not able to see the benefits of what we do. Yet as believers, we are called to fight the good fight of faith. And truth be told, my brothers and sisters, sometimes that's really hard to do. We can sow seeds and we can keep sowing seeds. But somewhere along the way, and I don't know about you, but somewhere along the way, I need to reap a harvest. But what do you do when there is no harvest in sight and you've been sowing for a very long time? How do you keep the faith and why should you keep the faith? Well, we have a clue. And this clue is found in the second book of Corinthians, the sixth chapter and the first through the tenth verse, where it says, and working together with him. We also urge you to not receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, here are the words, he says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Then help came on the day of salvation. But reading further in the text, listen carefully, church, to what it says. Behold. Now, right now, is the acceptable 
time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well known, as dying yet behold, we live as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. In other words, my brothers and sisters, recognizing that in all things, good and bad, we live to be a credit to the ministry of God and an enduring witness to the faithfulness of God. Brothers and sisters, simply put, our labor is not in vain. But still, pastor, those are nice Christian churchy words. But what are we to make of our afflictions? And how are we to live? And for how long? How are we to understand God and ourselves when everything seems to be upside down? Well, to answer this question, you need to understand the foolishness of God and in the context of our sin-infested world. Paul wrote this letter at a time when the city of Corinth was a major commercial crossroads in the first century. It was a lot like the major cities that we see today. Every nationality was represented among the people who lived and worked in Corinth. Every language was spoken in Corinth. Every culture was represented. You could find every kind of religion in the great city of Corinth. You could find every kind of philosophy and belief systems in Corinth, and yes, you could also find every kind of immorality in the city of Corinth. But the church of Corinth lived in the midst of what appeared to be an alien culture. Both geographically and spiritually, the church was starting to become disconnected from God. They were starting to question, why do we still believe? Why do we still worship? It seems that the world is changing all around us. Why are we still holding on to this thing called faith. It had created a spiritual vacuum in the world. The church was not representing and doing what God has called it to do. And therefore, you found now that everything of the world was starting to seep and to come inside the church. The church was starting to embrace worldly philosophies. The church was starting to embrace belief system that is foreign and alien to the word of God. The results were starting to be terrible. The church really now started to question their faith and slowly became uncertain of what it is that we truly believed. The church of Corinth, my brothers and sisters, quite simply had become lost. And they had lost not just their 
or their faith, but also the power of their faith and the strength and conviction to confront evil with the truth. Pretty soon, there was open immorality among the membership. And the church didn't see this as a particular problem, for they were just going along to get along. People did not take their marriage vows seriously. People were living in relationships that God's word condemns. The church brought worldly practices into its worship. And with those worldly practices came confusion and disorder. People partook of the Lord's Supper in a pagan manner, even giving it to unbelievers. And furthermore, the church took pride in its wrongful approach of appropriating spiritual gifts, unable to discern who in their congregations had gifts of speaking tongues, had gifts of administration, had gifts of prophecy. The church was blind even to the gifts that was within their own congregations. There was, there was internal strife. And get this, even in Corinth, the preachers and the pastors had become celebrities. The Corinthian church actually forgot the gospel. So in this city that prided itself on its intellectual prowess and its cultural lifestyle, Paul stood up and spoke about Jesus of Nazareth. Paul said he had been crucified by the Romans but raised from the dead by God and who was now Lord of the world, summoning people to faith and obedience to make this kind of announcement and to tell this kind of story about Jesus and the cross. It really was, was, was to invite people to ridicule and to mock Paul. But what we do know and what we need to know is that Paul knew that this seemed to those people the craziest thing that they have ever heard. In other words, Paul was speaking foolishness. Why? Because the people of that city thought that they were so wise that they knew more about everything than everybody else. Now, now before we blast the people of Corinth, what can we say about our present country, our present world, and dare I say, our present church? The United States is going through quite a bit of upheaval lately, particularly when it comes to the same moral and social issues. Here in America, we are confused about gender identity. There is no more male gender or female gender. There is just pronouns, okay? Healthcare, only those who can afford it have a right to quality healthcare. Since when we became the judge of people's lives. National security, everyone that does not look like us or think like us means to harm us and so we live in mortal fear. Then there is the big lie. We can't even trust our own systems of governance anymore. Everything is fake. Fake news, fake hair, fake eyes, fake movies, and even when an election is true, it is deemed fake, which leads to an insurrection. We don't even know what to believe anymore. Why? Because we are just so wise in our own eyes. We are oversexed, underpaid, overworked, undereducated, underemployed, and worst of all, my brothers and sisters, let me be emphatically clear, we are godless. We are just like the Corinthians. And worst of all, we are the church. 
This is what I mean by a sin-infested world. Nothing is sacred, and everything that we see and do is based on satisfying our own worldly, fleshly, and selfish desires. The late A.W. Tozer mused, and he said this. Listen carefully, church. The weakness, the weakness of so many modern Christians, meaning you and me, is that we feel too much at home in this world. And in our efforts to achieve restful adjustment to this unregenerate and unrepentant society, we have lost our pilgrim character and become an essential part of the very moral order against which we have been sent to protest. How then should God deal with such a world? The answer lies in a complete reversal of everything that has gone wrong with this sin-infested world. Welcome now, my brothers and sisters, to the kingdom of God. John the Baptist in Luke, the third chapter, in the fourth through the sixth verse, he declared this, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John the Baptist, in announcing the coming of Jesus Christ, was saying that there was a new order being inaugurated with a new upside-down kingdom that was going to radically transform the social patterns of this world and that all flesh will see the salvation of the Lord. In other words, to reverse everything that we think we know about this world and ourselves, God had to do a 180-degree turn. And in other words, we will now have to have full valleys, flat mountains, straight curves, and level bumps. Nothing that makes sense. Foolish even, but perfectly consistent with God's plan. <laughs> then... Jesus came, inaugurating this kingdom after John's declaration. And the central theme in the ministry of Jesus was that Jesus says, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Everywhere that Jesus went, everything that Jesus spoke about, everything that Jesus did was perfectly designed to express the reality of the kingdom of God. We need not go much further than to simply look at the Lord's prayer. What did he say? Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God is the reign of God based on his authority and his will over his loyal subjects in both heaven and earth. This kingdom of God is the complete reversal of everything that has gone wrong with our sin-infested world. And its aim is to use everything that makes sense to us look like nonsense. God was going to give us his own brand of shock treatment to wake us up, to get us to be woke, and that's exactly what he did at the cross. But what you need to know is that our world, as it stands today, understands really only two things. It understands wisdom 
and it understands strength. Yeah, from a wisdom perspective, the world craves knowledge. We want to go to the moon. We want to figure out all this stuff. We want to figure out coronavirus. We want to figure out, we want to just do everything that we know how to do. We love knowledge. The information age has come to the point where those who have the information are the ones who have the power. It is for this reason why Google and such websites have become so successful because they have found a way to harness information and to manage information. The more they know, the more powerful they become. But from a strength perspective, we all understand the power of words. Words have the ability to transmit concepts and thoughts from one person's mind to the mind of another. And when mixed with wisdom and knowledge, these words can cause us to build empires and to change lives. This too is a form of power. So we have power in information and we have power in words. But there's a different kind of power that God understands that is a mystery to all of those who are perishing. God has harnessed this power of information and this power of words. Stay with me, church, by using the foolishness of preaching to upend the wisdom of this sin-infested world. It is not merely that preaching that has its power. It is what you are preaching about that has the real power. It has turned this world into upside-down, topsy-turvy. Many people in the pulpit are telling you a lot of words. They're telling you a lot of things. They're giving you a lot of information, but they're not talking about the things that have real power. You bring power when you talk about the kingdom of God. You bring power, godly power, when you talk about the cross. You bring godly power when you tell this whole world everything that they know is not as it seems. For indeed, the things that do appear have no power and are no greater than the things that we do not see. Brothers and sisters, somehow, and I can't explain it, but somehow simply telling the story of Jesus Christ and him crucified, dead and buried, raised from the dead and ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of God the Father from whence he shall come and judge the quick and the dead. Somehow telling that story releases releases a power of quite a different sort than what this world knows or is accustomed to. The power that comes with human speech could not do this on its own. It is God's power besides which all human power looks weak. It is God's wisdom besides which all human wisdom looks really like folly. When when this pronouncement is made, people discover to their astonishment that things change. New communities come into being consisting of people grasped by this message, believing it to be true despite everything, falling in love with a God they find to be alive in the person of Jesus Christ and thereby giving Jesus their supreme Loyalty. We all want to understand and examine and analyze the kingdom of God. 
But as I told you before, my brothers and sisters, it is a mystery. And Jesus is not asking us to intellectualize the kingdom of God. He's asking us, hear me church, to enter it by faith. He's not telling you to figure it out and have all the right words. He's asking you to enter into it. That's it. It is foolish. It makes no sense. He's saying, listen to me. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. And even if you die, you shall live when you enter in to the kingdom of God. This is why. This is why there is a need for this upside down approach. Because if you and I could figure out this kingdom, you and I would be God. The eloquence of the preacher, the debating skills of the preacher, the intellect and the apologetic of the preacher cannot save you. You may like the way I talk. You may like the way my words sound. But if I am not telling you the gospel, then my brothers and my sisters, you might as well be dead. All of these things, while noble in and of themselves, lack the power to save. The only thing that has the power to save is the word of God and God in his wisdom uses the foolishness of preaching to propagate the word that saves. In a world where strength is revered and where knowledge is increased, God chose to do a complete 180 degree turn on all the things that we know and he uses the foolishness of preaching, the weakness of the cross to show the wisdom of his word and the power of his spirit to save those from perishing. It is the foolishness of the cross. For the word of the cross, as it says in 1 Corinthians, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. The Christian good news is all about God dying on a rubbish heap at the wrong end of the empire. Foolish! It's all about God babbling nonsense to a room full of philosophers and know-it-alls. Foolish! It's all about the true God confronting the world of posturing power and prestige and overthrowing it in order to set up his own kingdom. A kingdom in which the weak and the foolish find themselves just as welcome as the strong and the wise. This is what I mean, brothers and sisters, by foolish power. God's strength is made perfect in your weakness and in mine. And Jesus himself, the person of Jesus Christ himself, is the wisdom of God for those who are being saved. The foolishness of God in the preaching of his word is more powerful than anything you think you have experienced or know, for it has the power to save your very soul. It makes no sense. I can't understand it. I can't explain it, but I know how it changed my life, and I know it can change yours too. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts 
boast in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, I can boast of the Christ in me. Not for my own self or my own strength, but I can boast for the wisdom of God and the power of his Holy Spirit resides in me. And that is the only occasion for me to boast. So the more you laugh, the more you persecute, the more you judge and say, how foolish are you to come dressed in a fancy robe, stand in a pulpit, preaching Sunday after Sunday. How foolish <laughs> you are. Well, I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, the last will be first. And the first will be last. I rather you laugh now and I weep so that I can laugh later for eternity. That's the foolishness of preaching. He that has ears to hear, let them hear. Foolish power, my brothers and sisters, is based on the fact that God loves you and offers you a wonderful plan for your life, even though you can't understand it. Foolish power is you are sinful and you are separated from God. Therefore, you cannot know and you cannot experience God's love and plan for yourself by yourself. Foolish power is Jesus Christ is God's only provision for your sins and mine. And it is only through him that you can know and experience God's plan for you. And last but certainly not least. Foolish power is that you must individually receive Jesus Christ as your Savior for yourself. Then you can know and experience God's plan for your life. So my appeal today is quite simple. Verse 26 in 1 Corinthians says, chapter 1 says, Consider your calling, brethren. That there were not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of this world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. What does that mean, Pastor? Break it down. God has chosen you. God has chosen you. You may feel weak. You may feel broken. You may feel like you've got nothing to offer. I'm telling you, God has chosen you. He's chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. While many schools and institutions and organizations, they look for the brightest. God looks not just for the weakest, but for the contrite and humble in heart that would say, Lord, I don't understand, but I want to. And then he's chosen you. <laughs> Listen, God has chosen you. I don't know how to say it any better. God has chosen you so that you can now go forth and confound the very wise among you. 
Why is it that this one is, she is doing this? How did she end up or he end up in college? How, the foolish things of this world. How did this little church on the corner become so impactful in its community? For foolish things of this world. God has chosen you to confound the very wise of this world. The very wise of this world. Why? Why? For I am crucified with Christ. Yet I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And that is only foolishness to those that are perishing. May the Lord richly, richly bless you, my beloved.